Welcome to Orion Valley. I'm Josh Wall. I'm Rihanna Hudson. Frankly, I love movies. And frankly, I love books. Welcome to our podcast where we dissect films with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium so much. We're currently running our series Off the Shelf, where we discuss film adaptations of novels and see how they compare to each other. Rihanna, how are you doing today? How are you feeling? You ready to talk about No Country? I'm doing pretty good, and I'm I'm very ready. As ready as I will be. Yes. Which is very ready. So. <laughs> well, it sounds like you couldn't be more ready. So um, we mentioned uh, before that we have a couple very cool special episodes planned. Obviously, the series is has been different so far. It's just being Rihanna, uh, Rihanna and myself. But uh, today is super special because we have our one and only guest episode. And we have the lovely Matt Simmons here uh, with us to go through No Country for Old Men. How are you doing today, bud? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. I feel uh, pretty special that I'm the only guest in this series. And, uh, you know, thanks for having me back on. Of course. Of course. Um, can you move your mic back just a little bit? Yes. Yes, I can. I will also sit back here. Cool. That's much better. Thank you. Um, so we're obviously we're talking about No Country for Old Men, uh, originally written by one Cormac McCarthy and the 2007 film written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. We got a lot to talk about. We're going to dive into both these things let's first talk about the book um i want to pose um first rihanna is this your first time reading it do you have a specific relationship to the book or cormac mccarthy where does this come in for you in terms of your um literary knowledge uh i have a specific relationship to cormac mccarthy i read blood meridian uh in a southern fiction class during school uh and we really spent weeks just talking about Cormac McCarthy and the way that he writes. We also read The Road in that class too. So those were the first two books I've read by him uh, and then didn't return to him for a while until this series. And I think out of the three that I've read, uh, No Country for Old Men was like the most enjoyable reading experience Mm-hmm. Um, Blood Meridian is a lot. I loved it. It's one of my favorite books, <laughs> but it can be hard to get it's a through. Toughie. It's a toughie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, in terms of a lot of things. But uh, No Country, I think, uh, again, uh, just those three of Cormac McCarthy's library that I've read really takes what's so great about Blood Meridian and the Road and makes it uh, much more palatable i guess i'd say it's his most accessible out of what i've read so far um and definitely the easiest uh and best choice out of what i've read so far to adapt into a film Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and because it started off as a screenplay you can definitely tell or it started wanting to be a screen wanting to be a screenplay you can tell it's very um visual and like has a lot of dialogue in there but we'll get into that in a little bit um i myself also uh read uh, the road in high school and i've said for a while that's my favorite book ever because i just fell in deep love with that book and the way that the imagery and the metaphors and like just how everything just kind of came um came to a close in that book i really really loved it i definitely agree i think this is way more accessible than that i also started blood meridian at one point but i knew i was not ready for it especially (laughs) because it was like yeah it was so tough i was also reading it when i was on the road somewhere and it was uh not the best travel book i i I needed to kind of just be like 
I'm not focusing on anything else and just reading <laughs> Blood Meridian, but it is it is very tough. But this one, uh, I had been excited to read it for a while because I, I do love the movie and I wanted to see, and a lot of people do say it is, um, you know, for the most part, fairly faithful in terms of what, um, like this, a lot of scenes are definitely lifted directly out of the book. And we'll talk about the coin toss and all that. And obviously what is not in the, in the movie that is in the book, but um, I love Cormac McCarthy. I think his writing style is so interesting. He has such a way with words. He also has a way with dialects. He loves, um, you know, he's very fascinated by the way people talk. There's a lot of really good like moments in this book. Like when people say like sitting, you don't say sitting, they say setting and mm-hmm. like that's things like that. That really interests me. Uh, I like personally that he doesn't use quotation marks or you kind of have to figure out who's saying what it kind of makes it more of a puzzle to put together and fits with the tone of it. Um, and I personally had a great time reading this book. I, I think it just blew by. Um, and I like just honestly, I just couldn't put it down. I had, great time reading this um matt i know that you are a big um no country fan in terms of the film and you kind of had a little bit of the advantage over us of having read the book before so where does the book come in uh for you yeah i had i had seen the film first and then because i loved it so much um in high school i think we we had this free read friday where you could pick whatever book you wanted to read and i was like you know what? i've never read the book for no country for old men let's let's do that and so, yeah, I read it back in high school and I remember being extremely annoyed at the whole no punctuation thing. I <laughs> just like, I guess up until that point, I'd read all these other books that did it one way. And then Cormac's like, fuck that. I'm just gonna, you know, uh, confuse the shit out of you. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, revisiting it, even though one, uh, this most recent time I, I went with the audiobook, um, just because I, I had a free month of audible, you know, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's use it on this. Why not? And, uh, I think Cormac's writing style really lends itself to being in an audiobook form. Um, especially, I, I admit the the actor or whomever that did the audiobook did a great job, like you know, giving a distinct voice to each character. And so the back and forth, I think, flows a lot better than when I initially read it uh, back in back in high school. I would I would get confused maybe too often, and that kind of put me off. But uh, hearing an audiobook form, yeah, I, I just I. I kept listening to it like while at work doing you know downtime type type of stuff just having it on and uh, you know just i i love this story so anytime i get to revisit it is it's always a treat matt i have a really quick question pertaining Please. to audiobooks i've never listened to one uh and so i have to know so the man reading it would he do a falsetto every time a woman spoke Somewhat, not like an extreme exaggerated falsetto, but definitely like a higher voice for sure. <laughs> so yeah, on the one hand, that could be kind of like, you know, off-putting or like, oh, I don't really want to hear that. But um, I don't know. I thought it worked the way he he did uh, Carla Jean's voice and even the, her mom. Like it wasn't, you know, so ridiculous of a falsetto that you're like, what the hell is this guy doing? No, it was... It worked. It worked. But I'm sure there's audiobooks out there where it totally doesn't. So <laughs> what was funny was um, when I started the audiobook, there's a guy that like introduces the audiobook and his voice was really annoying. And I'm like, oh, please don't let it be this guy. And then it switched. I'm like, OK, we're good. We're good. <laughs> It's funny you say that. I've had people like read scripts of mine in class and whenever like if it's a male person reading a female character for whatever reason, they always do this like exaggerated female voice. Like just read. Yeah. Like can't you just read, please? Like it's so annoying. So I'm glad at least it wasn't um that annoying when this guy um 
uh, did it. Um, so Cormac McCarthy, obviously very celebrated writer, won the Pulitzer Prize um, for writing The Road. And, you know, a lot of people will kind of um, go to bat with his personal writing style. I remember once in, uh, when, I, when I was reading The Road in my senior year of high school, I thought it was really funny how there were, like like you, Matt, had, people had a lot of problems with the no punctuation or like, la- like certain lack of punctua- punctuation, especially the quotations and not really saying who is who. It's harder in The Road, I think, because no one has names in The Road. They're just the dad and the son and like the mom. And um, so it kind of makes it a little bit di- more difficult. And I remember my um, <laughs> my professor was like, um, I asked, I was like, why do you think he does that? And she's like, I don't know. Why do you think? And I was like, oh, okay. And then I looked it up and it's just because he what has a teacher a cool, response. It was, it's so stereotypical because I looked it up and I was thinking like, okay, it's going to be this, like, you know, it fits the tone or like, and it does fit the tone, but I read his quote was just like, yeah, I just don't like the, uh, all those ink blots, you know, like kind of busying up the page. And it's like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I see. But at least with the road, it's just the man and his son most of the time speaking back and forth with Blood Meridian. It'll be like five different people in a group and you're like mm-hmm. going back three pages. Like who's talking? Yeah. yeah. Well, even in this book, it's like two sheriffs will be talking and one of them is like this, like this person says this and then the sheriff said this. Well, it's like, well, which one? Like, <laughs> now I got to go all the way back and like, yeah, but I, I don't mind that. I, I, don't, I don't find it frustrating because for me, repetition is the way for me to like really retain things like, you know, watching a movie again or, you know, rereading a passage over again, like makes me really kind of fully retain everything that is being like um, that is at play. So I personally um, don't mind that. But one thing I do want to start with that really struck me about the book um, was how clear he separates each of the three main characters voices and Mm. like the what he is describing in each so there's ed tom bell um llewellyn moss and anton chigurh and at the beginning that none of them have met up yet so each of them has their own section of where they're going and how they're leading to a moment to possibly you know intertwine um and it's interesting how you know ed tom kind of becomes the uh, kind of the central narrator as the book goes on. And he has these almost journal like entries that are all italicized and are clearly just him working through his thoughts and have a lot of emotion and kind of contemplative um, self uh, like self-reflection almost. And just a lot of like, you know, a part of my life where it's like, I don't really know what to make of that. You know, a lot of stuff yeah. like that. Um, Llewellyn is very detailed oriented. He takes a lot of thought into look like when he's like at the drug scene, he's like, Oh yeah, he, he would go to the shade. Now where would the shade be? And he like looks to the West and see if there's like a path They're like, you know, it's, it's very detailed. And then um, when I was reading it, Sugar kind of felt very monotone and very like he does this and then this and then this and then this and then this. And he does that a lot with like in other sections of the book. But I thought it was really interesting how each position of the story from these characters feels like their own different, like at least semi tweaked writing style. And I thought that was really interesting. And I very much enjoyed how um, even though the story is very like is, is dark and gritty, you could very much discern where the characters um, are in terms of mindset. And I, I personally enjoyed that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, with that, not only does it come across stylistically, but it really helps highlight how different each walk of life is mm-hmm. for all three characters, uh, which I think helps make it such a more great payoff when they all intersect. Like you said, Josh, where, 
you get the moment where all of them cross paths and yeah it's it's, it's really really fun um i i wanted to also ask was um in terms of uh, just in terms of types of readers, I, I know, Rihanna, we've kind of talked about, touched on this a little bit, but um, are you guys more, um, did you find this book fast to read? Was it pretty, like, fine pace for you guys? Could you not put it down? Or was it uh, very similar in pace to other books that you read? And I'll start with you. How did you feel the pacing of the book um, felt to you? I think it goes by really fast. Um, mm-hmm. Faster than the road, which I think is shorter and like visually looks very shorter. It's very short chapters, um, but the road, it, it's very repetitive. Uh, and I mean that lovingly because I do think it's a great book. Um, but No Country was just paced so perfectly where once it picks up, it really doesn't slow down. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I finished it pretty quickly, uh, which, you know, a lot of that was having free time, but also just like you said, Josh, I just couldn't put it down. And, you know, Blood Meridian is a bit more of a slog. Uh, and again, I say that lovingly because I love that book, but it's very dense. Yeah. And uh, you feel a lot less committed to getting through it because there's a lot less like mysteries or stakes. But in No Country, you know, the stakes are so high. And I didn't remember what really happens. Um, it's been like 10 years since I've seen the movie. So for me, it was like experiencing the plot all over again. And mm-hmm. there really is an element of, I got to find out what happens next. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm a very slow reader personally. I think it just has to do with trying to get into a better schedule. But the fact that we set a deadline for this made it work. But also, <laughs> again, that most of the, there's so much of the, I, I would say like probably a good like, you know, 60% of the book is just devoted to conversation. So it kind of moves pretty quickly, especially when, you know, the conversations go on for sometimes pages and pages and Cormac likes to get the syntax just right where uh, it's like someone will say something and then someone will be like, what? And then they'll have to, they'll have to say it again. And then like, yeah, tweak, like that happens word. a lot, which yeah. is interesting. It's very interesting. And, but it makes it go by quickly. Cause you're, cause you're just like kind of reading it at the speed to make the tension like, you know, increase and increase. Um, and I thought that was fun. Was it the same for you, Matt? Like, were you like kind of reading it? It kind of becomes like a play at some point when you're doing like an audio book like that. Um, did it go by pretty quickly for you? Or were there times where it's like, okay, this chapter, if someone's just reading it to me, it's going slower than other parts of the book. How did the pacing of it feel to you? Yeah. I mean, when I initially read it, I probably read it at a pretty slow pace again, because I did sometimes have trouble just with the punctuation thing. And, you know, the, I I guess you wouldn't call them run-ons, but like the way he does the end and, and, you know, I I guess it challenged me initially, but with the audiobook, it made it way easier to just, you know, sit down and like focus on it. If I was, you know, walking to work, for example, I just was completely focused on that since walking so secondary and uh, because of that, I just like would keep listening to it. Like, and I mean, again, we did have a bit of a deadline, so I knew I had to <laughs> get it finished in a certain amount of time. But at the same time, I was just like, I'm gonna end up finishing early, like you know, at a quicker pace than I need to, just because I I love listening to this book. And like, um, you know, I've seen the movie so many times since I between since I last read it. So, you know, just kind of noticing the differences especially like all the monologues that are in the book, which are some of my favorite parts of the book. Um, just like getting to hear those again. And again, the, the, uh, audiobook readers, his voice for Ed Tombell was like, I think just kind of his speaking voice, but it was just so like enthralling in a very similar way to Tommy Lee Jones voice. And so I, th- I mean, I think that it was perfect casting there because just having this like old grizzled Texan, you know, just, <laughs> 
you know, espousing on life and just a stream of consciousness. And uh, so, you know, just, uh, yeah, I, I listened to it quite quickly. Um, I think this was my first audiobook I've ever listened to. So it's the kind of thing that I don't know if I would always, it'd always be my go-to an audiobook. Um, but since it was my second time reading this, I, I felt a little more comfortable doing so. Cause there is something you miss out on with an audiobook where you, like, you know, the way you perceive the dialogue in your own head versus having someone say it to you. Um, not to, you know, I mean, people love audiobooks and I'm, I know my mother loves to listen to a bunch of them, but you know, there's something about like just reading and the tactileness of it that I think, you know, it's two different experiences. So I'm glad I have, I've experienced this book both ways. There is one thing I want to bring up about the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Josh, you mentioned that, uh, Ed Tom, a lot of his journal entries are very self-reflective, uh, mm-hmm. which they definitely are. But I think a huge thing about the book that, for as far as I could tell, was just straight up not really present in the film. Uh, at, well, we could argue that actually, I'm sure we will, was Ed Tom's musings on, you know, the country and society uh, mm-hmm. and just the decay of culture and humanity on a whole, mm-hmm. especially in relation to war. Uh, yeah. And just you know, the way that he interacts with people both in work and out of work. There's a little anecdote in one of his journals about an interaction he had with a woman at church or something where, or maybe not church, but a woman who says something uh, regarding Roe v. Wade and how she wants her daughter to be able to get an abortion. Mm-hmm. And Ed Time kind of, you know, thinks about that um, and politics and the politics war. Those are things that he muses on uh, pretty often, those journal entries that I think we just don't get in the movie. Save that thought, because I also (laughs) have a lot of thoughts on Ed Tom Bell a little bit later. But uh, to kind of continue on just him as a character in in, in the book specifically, it was my definitely my favorite sections to read were his journal entries and whenever he was present. Partially because I'm so also like I've seen the movie so many times, I'm just used to seeing Tommy Lee Jones and hearing him so more Tommy Lee Jones in my head is like can live there. <laughs> never like, a bad thing. Yeah, it's never a bad thing. Um, but it, yeah, he. I think because it opens like the book opens with the, the I was sheriff of this county when I was twenty five years mm-hmm. old. Hard to believe, you know that kind of thing. Um, and so you get that initial like grain of an idea about the world that is being set up, and like as it slowly goes on and on, you kind of get a better understanding of Ed Tom's position and everything, and you definitely see this yeah he is kind of decaying more and more as the book goes on i was i was pleased to see and you do see him um change over the course of the film too just a, a little bit differently but like seeing or just like reading how this guy is like kind of barreling towards retirement and just kind of apathy with the rest of the world was so fascinating and and yeah i love the anecdotes sometimes that yeah it would just be a story but it was about something that clearly stuck with him because this is mm-hmm. a guy who, you know, I like that this book is set in 1980 because I think the Internet would just kind of ruin this, you know, and the, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, I saw so I saw this one girl on Twitter today like that wouldn't it's not a good. It's not a good book, you know, um, but just yeah, like you said, the him talking about like Roe v. Wade and or that that woman saying something about abortion was like just a really interesting, like quick little, you know, snapshot of him in everyday life, but also he is very perceptive. He picks up on things and it's cool to see that juxtaposition of him, like picking up in things in social situations and trying so fucking hard to catch this guy, but he's not 
able to do it. And it makes it so much more kind of heartbreaking at the end when he does kind of eventually just, you know, give in to his own shortcomings and retires and sugar ends up, you know, leaving and walking free. And I just think that that it was so cool to read and was so fun and to put those pieces together and see also just how he interacts with the people. Cause he is like, you know, he is the old timer, you know, as he says, you know, I always like to hear about the old timers, you know, all that like <laughs> is so, so interesting. And he's just a great character. And I, I was, uh, I had such a blast reading him. And again, all of the, certain grammatical changes and syntax and like dialects that they have in this, um, in South Texas that Cormac like loves putting in there, um, is, is just really fun to read. For yeah. sure. Yeah. He is such a great character. And I think that is kind of, uh, not a gripe. That's too strong of a word, but something that I think the movie didn't totally capture as much as the book, which you have more time and more room and you could do whatever you want in a novel. I don't think the film really totally captured his character the way that you get to see it in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, namely the whole like war backstory and how, you know, a lot of his men died and the yeah. guilt there. Uh, yeah. They, they leave a lot of that out of the movie. And um, I think it's pretty important to show, you know, that event has, is still lingers with him. And then this uh, inability to capture Shigur is like bringing all those memories back of like, a moment where you know he's still a person in power but he failed at his responsibility and like grappling with like how does he come to terms with himself as a person when yeah. he didn't do what he was supposed to do yeah and i think it it makes it kind of clear in the book or maybe not clear but to me it makes it seem much more like he's seen retirement uh as cowardice the way that you know the incident during the war was cowardice to him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh Whereas in the film, I don't think it comes across as like cowardice. I think it comes across as just like just losing and just giving up. Right. To, just like sheer defeat. Yeah. Which both are sad. And in the book, he's still defeated, obviously. But with mm-hmm. that characterization of, you know, his time in the war and how it just tears him up, I think that offers another level to his character of, mm-hmm. you know, seeing himself less as a lawman and more of like a coward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is definitely the the one thing I think that they that they left out of the movie that I wish they kind of brought in more. Most things that they chopped from the book, I agree with. Like, oh yeah, you didn't need that or this or that, and I can get into the specifics eventually. But yeah, Ed Tom's backstory I think would only really help to bolster his character in, in the audience's eyes. But you know, I, I I still like what the movie did anyway. Okay, before we bring the movie into our conversation, let's take a quick break to hear a word from today's sponsor. Let's be honest, folks. We've all turned to the fridge when we're in desperate need for home decor inspiration. How many households have you been in with a bowl of fruit painting on the wall? It's a worldwide phenomenon, and it's heartbreaking when you realize your favorite fungal ingredient just doesn't liven up your living room as you thought it would. But have no fear. Even though the mushrooms in your fridge don't have much personality, you can add some cheeky, curvaceous toadstools to your walls. Introducing Tushrooms. Former film guest Lexi Cutmore has put her artistry out into the world and let me just say, it's one of a kind. With the cap of a mushroom and body of a female figure, mushroom ladies come in a variety of customizable colors, shapes, and sizes. The drawings are a unique way to add some personalized color to your home. Plus, who isn't all about body positivity at this point? Get with the times, people. To order your tushrooms, visit Underground Art Project on Etsy.com. That's Underground Art Project on Etsy.com. That's U-N-D-G-N-D-A-R-T-P-R-O-J. 
customize your fungus female today. Yeah, let's bring in the movie to this conversation. So a film by uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen uh, from 2007, American neo-Western crime uh, thriller stars, um, Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, Josh Brolin, uh, Kelly McDonald, and uh, Woody Harrelson, and Stephen Root. Uh, it's cinematography by uh, Roger Deakins and went on to win four Academy Awards, including uh, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Directors, Best Support, uh, supporting performance by an actor from uh, Javier Bardem and actually winning uh, Best Picture. I mean, you can't really understate the, um, you know, the wins here, especially in a move in a year for movies that was just so massive. This There Will Be Blood with the two big contenders, Michael Clayton, Zodiac, super bad, huge year um, for American movies. And, uh, you know, it is a very important, like kind of pivotal point in the uh, in the Cohen's career. We'll talk about uh them a little bit later first though i want to get back to kind of how we talked about uh the book at the start of this where does the movie come in in terms of just our general personal relationships with it as a work um Rian, i think you said you hadn't seen the movie in uh in quite a quite a while so i wanted to start with you how was it um setting like just the book aside how was it revisiting it like what was your relationship beforehand where does this movie come in for you yeah my relationship with the movie beforehand was just sort of a thing of it's a great movie like its reputation uh almost being what i think of when i think of the movie rather than the movie if that makes sense Mm -hmm. uh obviously there's such great scenes like the coin toss the ending with ed tom and his wife yeah so it's a movie where its reputation was what i would think of before thinking of the actual content of the film uh Mm -hmm. but revisiting it you definitely see why it has the reputation that it does, but it really, I almost wish that I watched it again before reading the book and mm-hmm. then watched it again after reading the book, because I think I'd, I might have different feelings because watching it right after reading the book was almost like, this feels like it pales in comparison to the book. Uh, mm-hmm. It was hard to look at it as just a standalone film. Cause I was just constantly comparing it to the source material, which is fair when you have an adaptation yeah, that's uh, what we're here to do, right? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it, it was never really a movie where I was like, I love this movie. It's just a movie that you see and you're like, yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For yeah. me, at least. I, I get why it's some people's favorite movies. That's why I'm interested to hear from you, Matt, because, you know, if it's yeah. one of your favorite movies and then how does it compare afterwards after reading the book? Right. Yeah. Um, in 2007, when this movie was coming out, I remember watching the Oscars with my parents and being like enthralled by both No Country and There Will Be Blood. And I'm like, wow, I want to grow up so I can watch these movies. <laughs> um, and, and uh, you know, I was right. I love both those movies very, very much. And, um, you know, when I first saw No Country, I could. it just was such a special movie to me because I'd seen like other you know, Westerns or neo-Westerns or, you know, things that are similar thematically, but there's just something so special about No Country that I just feel like, you know, maybe it's cliche to say, but it's just like a perfect movie to me. Like I have no flaws with it. Um, And I, I, you know, when people ask what's my favorite movie ever, it's usually the answer I give alongside uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Those are my my top two. And they have been for a while because I don't know, like it's, it's hard to pick just one. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you know, having seen the movie first when I when I read the book the first time, 
I guess I was looking at it from that point of view of like, oh, let's see what's different, you know, compared comparatively. And I remember the first time I, re- I read the book after having seen the movie, the the difference that stuck out to me the most was the runaway girl towards the end. And I remember coming away from that like, yeah, I'm glad they cut that out. That doesn't really add anything. I think it's kind of a deviation that doesn't really need to happen. And uh, that was kind of like my summary was like, yeah, I think this is one of the best book to film adaptations of all time because I think it honestly like improves on the book in, in certain respects. And usually you don't see that to be the case. Usually, you know, people have so many gripes of what they leave out of a movie. But for me, uh, that that runaway and some other things that they left out, I, th- I thought they did so with good reason. And uh, yeah, it, it, it remains to be one of my favorites. I've seen it many times. I've shown it to many friends. And uh, yeah, it's 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 good shit. <laughs> I I mean I have a very similar answer. It was it was always like one. I remember when my stepdad went to go see it around that time, and it was kind of stayed in family conversation. Like ever since then, like my brother loves to recite the entire opening narration that Tommy Lee Jones gives just randomly. You just do that, so he loves that. Um, I remember uh, I think I said this before when we talked about this movie on um, on our best of the two thousands decade. Um, I had a history teacher in high school who this was his favorite movie, and he and I tried to memorize all the dialogue to the famous um the coin toss scene because he loved that and that became like another added special thing to us because it was like one of the first times i remember really bonding with a teacher over movies um and and like such a deeper level of that uh and so it's always been i actually watched it twice last year in quarantine just because like you know why not it just kind of came up again and it's always fun to just pop it back in but um i do agree with uh, rihanna a little bit that my uh my perception of it definitely changed I, I do wish i had watched it before as kind of a this is how i feel about the movie right now read the book and then finished and been like oh okay because my perception of it did change i mean i still adore it but it you're right that i was so used to the the pacing and the overall structure of the book that um, and the stuff that they ended up taking out that you're right, that do that does stick out to me like, oh, yeah, they, this isn't there. Oh, this isn't there. And so especially when, when you start reading the book, like I think the first like, you know, third of the book is pretty is like there in the movie. Yeah, like, it's it, pretty yeah. much like it scene by scene by scene. It's so true to it. Mm-hmm. It really yeah, does. And, yeah, and even, and even down to a lot of the dialogue. Yeah, like mm-hmm. the coin toss is pretty much one for one up until like the end. Sugar goes on a little bit longer than, and that's one thing. Just a minor thing I like is in the movie he just ends it with like the quarter will just become another coin, which it is, and then he leaves. Yeah. Like and I like the simplicity a, of that. You a know? great like look given to the clerk, <laughs> yeah. which Josh is doing right now, which is yeah. so funny. And I have so much to say about Javier Bardem's performance, like really mm-hmm. adding to that character, but we can get into that later. <clears throat> yeah, we got time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I there was something about it where, and I'm, I'm actually really glad I wrote this in my notes. I'm really happy that we did wait to record this because we were going to do it a week ago, but I'm glad that we waited because there's been this weird tug of war going on in my head of like, this is in the book that I really like, but this is how the movie does it that I really like. And I'll, I'll get into my reasoning for that as to why, but they're just two very interesting works. Like, yes, there's a lot of it that is lifted directly from the book dialogue and scene wise, but it still feels like a Coen brothers movie. That's what I was going to say that in terms of, you know, adapting a novel, they really do make it feel more like a Coen Brothers film with little tweaks that aren't even very dependent on. It's not like they changed any dialogue majorly or changed any characters too drastically. But uh, uh, Wendell, I believe, is the name of 
his deputy. And Tom's, yeah, his deputy feels like he could have been in Fargo, just the performance. Yeah. Um, yeah. The clerk uh, of the trailer park complex mm-hmm. that Llewellyn lives at and the way that she <laughs> talks to Anton Sugar, uh, she's just so funny. And she, I think that's a performance that feels very Coen Brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm glad that we get to have those things added into the film without it taking away anything from the source material and making it its own special film. Yeah. I mean, the Coens clearly picked this intentionally because this is their first like adaptation. If you don't count, you know, uh, Oh brother, we're out there being based kind of on the Odyssey, which is like, you know, it's an adaptation of sorts, but like this is their first true, like one for one adaptation. And clearly they wouldn't have picked it if they, you know, didn't just really resonate with the book. And I I think, you know, I, I can't, you know, picture my mind in this vacuum of where the movie doesn't exist and I just read the book, but I'd like to think that if I read this book, I'd be like, wow, this would be a great Coen Brothers movie because <laughs> it just does have, as you said, like a lot of these side characters that are very Coen and just story beats and like an ending that's very Coen. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, 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 I'm so glad, you know, this work could become a Coen Brothers movie. I'm glad we live in that universe, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I I mean I think we're all big Colin Brothers fans here. <laughs> oh, yeah. So um it was it, and it's also it's it's impossible to understand just how quickly this project be, like came to be because the book was released in two thousand five. They got like it, it came out on a Friday, they got the rights over the weekend and the movie was greenlit on a Monday. Like it was so like quickly turned around and then they yeah. got the whole cast like all they wanted, like right on board as quickly as possible. So it was like really fast it's like the equivalent like most recently like a few years ago when the girl on the train was a big uh was a big book and that became you know definitely not a best picture winning movie but it's the same 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 idea where the yeah yeah the concept and of itself quickly became um you know spread through the u.s like wildfire in terms of um i mean do you happen to know how big the book was when it came out like prior to it being a film because like yeah, the thing with the girl on the train was like it was a very t- big seller and a lot of people were reading it and so of course they were gonna you know snap snap let's make a movie but I I don't know how I mean I guess at that point Carmack was pretty established mm-hmm. um, yeah I, I don't know about a like a certain number in terms of how many copies sold but it was very much critically acclaimed and yeah again like you know McCarthy had been around writing for decades at that point so right. he was kind of already in a um, obviously a very established um, name at that point, but it's just interesting to kind of take note of literally 2005, 2007, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's two wild. years, two years seems like a lot of time, but for a work like that, that's like, boom, boom, boom. That's kind of, that's kind of amazing. Um, it is. Are there any other general thoughts that we want to get out there? Or do we want to just dive into the critical stuff? Cause I know um, we got a lot to talk about. Well, yeah, this might just count as a critical thing. Um, but in terms of, what was left out of the film. Um, I do think that the hitchhiker being left out was actually something that disappointed me. And and I think it could have been integrated into the film if they wanted to go for the uh, like 245 mark, they could mm-hmm. have had the hitchhiker in there. Um, because I found those scenes between her and Llewellyn to be so good at really highlighting or not highlighting, but I think she's a really good, you know, parallel or mirror to Llewellyn of Mm -hmm. just two young 
And I will say that to me, the book, I pictured Llewellyn as like a 23 year old. <laughs> I don't know if they say explicitly how old he is, but then in the film, he's like a man. Right. Like, I think definitely. the book does say he's in his 30s, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. Because I know they make it pretty clear that his wife is pretty young, like very young. I think and she so, says she's 19 in the book. Yeah. Which obviously, Kelly McDonald wasn't at the time <laughs> yeah. in the movie. But. <laughs> but I saw, you know, the hitchhiker and her presence towards the end of the novel as, you know, her being a young person doing something without thinking, mm-hmm. not considering consequences and only considering what good could come out of you know, a future, like I'm going to move to California and I'm going to have friends there and have a great time. Much like Llewellyn just taking money without thinking like, well, now I'm rich, like uh, not thinking through consequences. And Llewellyn brings up to the hitchhiker, you know, you could have been picked up by someone with bad intentions, but she wasn't. But things still, uh, spoilers, end poorly for her. Uh, Mm -hmm. With her being killed in the crossfire, basically, just as a result of happening to meet, pass with Llewellyn and, you know, Llewellyn and by extension, his wife end up dead and murdered as a result of just happening to pass upon a drug deal gone bad and pass paths with Sugar. And so I think the hitchhiker was a good example of just the way that everyone who has the misfortune of in some way entering the peripheral of sugar meets a very unfortunate ending. I, I personally agree with what you're saying. And I, uh, I liked reading. I, there wasn't a part of the book that I didn't like reading. <laughs> um, and I, I understood like the intention behind the hitchhiker and that whole, it just kind of it feels like, here's another section. Like this is another section of the book. It definitely feels like um, because it goes on for, it's such a significant part of the last like third of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, the same way when I was watching, I was like, Oh, this is interesting. I, uh, I was trying to figure out because they, I think what they wanted to do was to kind of keep it like they're, you know, the, the Coens are no strangers to brevity. So I think they kind of wanted to take the central ideas of a lot of certain scenes that were cut out and implement them in different ways. Like in the, basically where that section would be, that's when Llewellyn goes to the motel and starts talking with the girl out in the, in the pool, you know, beer leads to another thing, you know, I'm mm-hmm. waiting on my wife, you know, that all that, all that. And I think that that's what they were trying to do. Yeah. But and, I, and that woman ends up dead in the pool as well. Like you see that she was killed in the crossfire, much like the hitchhiker in the book. Yeah. So I, I'm fine with both. I think they both work. I understand why they cut it out, but Rihanna, your analysis makes total sense. Um, it definitely would have accentuated the point had there been an actual, like, more talky-talky relationship between the two as opposed to just the one, you know, quick minute and a half scene that we have yeah. uh, in the movie. I just think, I, I I don't know, there's something about the pacing of this movie. It's a tight two hours. And I definitely agree if they would kept it. They they cut out some stuff where it just becomes like if they wanted to keep everything in, it probably would have been, yeah, like 2.30. Like not that much, 2.45, not that much longer. I, I understand why they took it out, but it is still a good, you know, crucial part of the of the book that I was personally you know, fine with. And yeah. I think well, really quickly, another thing too is uh, I think the inclusion of the hitchhiker uh, just makes the ending just so much more miserable. And that's one thing that Cormac McCarthy as an author does very well, just make these miserable <laughs> like mm-hmm. worlds and endings because the hitchhiker is so bright eyed and bushy tailed and very innocent. 
And so her getting killed so brutally and it feels so pointless, just really makes it more miserable, which I can see why the Coen brothers, they definitely made the tone a lot less dark, or at least more palatable in the film. It's, it's miserable, but it's not as painful as it is in the book. Like Mm -hmm. in the book, we get lots of examples, like the old woman in her apartment, Mm -hmm. which is just a really sad, awful thing. And we, and we didn't get that in the movie, and I couldn't remember whether or not they included that in the film. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not surprised that they didn't. Yeah, it's think- pretty small. Yeah, and I never really considered, I guess, the, the parallelism between The Hitchhiker and Llewellyn, and I guess that is something to enjoy about it. I guess for me, a lot of the dialogue in those scenes in the book just aren't really interesting and don't bring to light anything new about Llewellyn, and he's pretty kind of just like messing with her the whole time. And for me, when I initially read it, I felt like he included this scene to remind us of the humanity of Llewellyn and like that he is, you know, at, at his core, a good person. But for me, it felt unnecessary because the main action I think that spurs us to root for him is the fact that he would even go back at all to give the guy water, mm-hmm. at, you know, at the yeah. beginning. I think that's the action that like tells us like this guy has a conscience and he's going to do something completely idiotic just to like, you know, for seemingly no reason, just because it's weighing on his conscience seemingly. So I guess, um, you know, I can appreciate why, you know, you enjoy the hitchhiker scene. But for me, I guess I just didn't find it very interesting upon revisiting it. But it is definitely, you know, it adds to the misery of this poor girl. <laughs> uh, but then I also go back and forth of like, wouldn't Llewellyn know that he shouldn't be picking up this girl since he's, you know, being hunted at the moment. So like it's completely irresponsible to even have with him yeah. so i'm like wouldn't he be kind of wouldn't he know that and not do that I, don't. I made a note that i was like if this was if tarantino did no country i think he would make the two of them like the a plot or like a more prevalent throughout the story or something mm. it seems and like kind of a like a once upon a time in hollywood kind the of hitchhiker thing. would put her bare feet up on yeah the <laughs> i mean it is like brad pitt mark or quali in uh, <laughs> in uh hollywood at some point but like I, one of the things that I was going to mention is that I think the Cohen brothers want like our actually I'll save that point. We'll talk about it a little bit later. Well, um, go, so go ahead, Rihanna. Well, yeah. What Matt was saying about how the hitchhiker also helps highlight how good of a person Llewellyn ultimately is. I think her presence also highlights that he is biting off more that he can more than he can chew and his bravado and ego of thinking that he's like an action star or a cowboy basically and just refusing to acknowledge that he's so in over his head because you said matt like why would he pick up a hitchhiker like i think it's an example of him thinking that everything can just go back to normal right like he's Uh, gonna get past all this yeah you know it's gonna catch up to him yeah and uh so you know with with the hitchhiker not being in the movie i think we don't get that example but again josh brolin's performance and so many other things in the film do highlight his ego and being a cowboy and that nothing can hurt him he was a veteran right Mm -hmm. uh when it's just so not it's not like it is in the movies i i want to talk about the performances because i think these three central performances needed to be you know really top notch because of how dense the characters are in the book and also because of the amount of you know weight that they have to carry in terms of moving the story along because like you said it's i mean it's a cat and mouse movie and obviously like the book the book kind of focuses on a little bit more of like other themes we can talk about a little bit later but it's kind of tough that like to kind of take on the story of like these three 
different lives intersecting because of one single event and not in a way that's like, a, oh, we're all connected kind of, you know, kind of way. <laughs> um, but it they have a lot of weight to carry in terms of moving the story along. They each have their own frame of mind and, you know, intent and obstacle that they have to get through. So all of these actors really had a lot that they needed to um, or even just in terms of casting, they needed to get the right people. And I think Josh Brolin, Tommy Lee Jones and Javier Bardem knock it out of the park, all three of them. And it's hard not to focus on Bardem the first time, really any time you watch it. But every time I go back, the last time I watched it before this, I focused only on Tommy Lee Jones and what he's doing. This time it was really fun to see everything that Josh Brolin does because of the description that's the descriptions that are given in the book about what Llewellyn does and how his intellect really comes in, but how he's also, you know, like you said, kind of this veteran kind of dummy cowboy character character that intersect and it's it's so fast i think all three of them did such a good job and just how they clearly are very comfortable in these roles like almost to a scary like level especially with bardem but they're so committed like they mm-hmm. know that this is not just like bardem knows that this is something this, that this is sicario and not sicario too you know like he <laughs> is like very much like i know what i'm doing like i know what the, where this is going and i'm just like I'm in. And same with Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones was at the perfect time in his career to do this. And this was the making of a star with Bardem. And it's, you don't see a lot of movies do that now with like these three very interesting career paths for these actors and just like a part of where they are in their career. And they are just, I think it's perfect casting. I think they're all just dynamite. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that they settled on Bardem. I think watching some round table with the Coens they f- did back in 2007 that I found on YouTube, they they knew pretty quickly that they wanted Javier. But it's interesting because I believe Cormac McCarthy chose the last name Sugar because it's intentionally like not traceable to any ethnicity. So he wanted Anton Sugar to be like this, you know, this boogeyman of like, you know, who, who is this guy? Like he's almost unreal. So, um, you know, they kind of had a blank slate for who to cast, you know, they weren't locked into anything. And I think, you know, now it's impossible to, you know, picture anyone but Bardem as just this intimidating force. And, you know, the the haircut, what a choice, you know, like <laughs> what a choice. And like, uh, God damn it's it awful, works. But it's so good. Well, yeah. I uh, I didn't know that Cormac McCarthy had made Sugar's last name purposefully weird to trace back. And, uh, you know, Bardem, I always want to say Bardem. Bardem gives such an amazing performance because during the film, I was thinking like he's speaking in an accent that I can't pin down. Like what kind of accent, where he would be from. It's not quite Texan. It's, it's a weird accent. Yeah. I'm, if I'm guessing it's probably like his native, I mean, he's from Spain. So I think it's kind of like a Spanish accent, but like toned down a little bit maybe. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I might sound completely stupid. This is like the only movie I've seen him in. So that might just be how he sounds. (laughs) (laughs) This is the only movie I've seen with a Spanish person in it. (laughs) So it's a little, that might just be how (laughs) Javier Bardem sounds. But I, I thought I was like, he sounds like different. (laughs) <laughs> but if that's just how he sounds, please correct me. Well, his accent is definitely thicker in, in like if he's just speaking in an interview, conversation. Yeah. yeah so he is toning like, it down for the film. Yeah. He's putting uh, well, on something else. He's kind of anglicizing it? his Spanish accent. I would yeah. Say. Okay. 
that what's interesting sense. is that yeah there isn't there is a little bit of an accent but like you can kind of like you still can't really place where this guy's from because it's like they're in southern texas they're close to the mexican border so it's mm-hmm. like could he be from Mexico? but he like has the presence and look of someone who is like just almost not of this world like yeah. his whole wardrobe doesn't match anybody in the movie his like he's very kind of monosyllabic and like monotone throughout the throughout the movie and throughout you know most of the book is very just kind of he is kind of messing with people you know you see it in the coin toss scene where he's just like you know uh what business of yours where i'm from and he's just kind of messing with the guy you know he's like oh when i'm like i'll come back around dark like after you close it's like what like the guy's just like the fuck like it's so intimidating it's very intimidating (laughs) but he he does such a good job of just being like someone you've never really seen before and yeah the haircut I lo- when he accepted his Oscar he's like thanks to the Coens for putting one of the most horrible haircuts in history <laughs> yeah. on my head because it is truly horrendous but it is so perfect for the character because you're just like I should be laughing at this guy but I, I kind of want to piss my pants every time he's on screen because <laughs> yeah. it's so fucking scary. I mean they quickly set the tone the book and movie do- does with you know him strangling the deputy which I think the movie elevates because of his facial expression in that moment is like his facial expression in that moment is like one of my favorite things in any movie. Like it's just true, like mania. And like, uh, apparently something I read at one point was that these two college professors studied a bunch of different film characters to decide like, who's the most like has tendencies of a psychopath. And they came to the conclusion that Anton Chigurh is the most like true to form psychopath in a, in a film. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I think Bardem just captures that in every single moment and breath and facial expression. And it's, it's crazy. Bardem's performance, I think uh, really makes up for the fact that a lot of Chigurh's dialogue is cut mm-hmm. because the scene at the very end where he goes back to murder Carla Jean. Uh, that's something that I'm actually really salty was <laughs> minced in the film because mm-hmm. I think that's such an amazing scene and it really shows how uh, intelligent Carla Jean is. And yeah. I think Carla Jean's musings on fate and things that are meant to happen, uh, which we see from her in her conversation with the sheriff talking about how she knew she was fated to be with Llewellyn. Uh, That's also a conversation that's cut from the film Mm, or cut mm -hmm. for the film. Her musings on fate and what's meant to happen circles back when she's faced with Anton Chigurh and her face there, fate there. Uh, And it's a really great back and forth and, that's just not in the movie, which I was really disappointed in. I thought it would be. Uh, so do you like that she actually calls it in the book? Because I kind of prefer in the film that she she is stubborn and is like, I'm not going to call it. Like that to me, that's more true to like what Carla Jean has become at this point because of this whole ordeal that she's like, fuck you. I'm not calling it like, you mm, know, that's a good question. Um, and, you know, I brought up that that whole scene in relation to Sugar and Bardem and his performance because so much of that dialogue is like cut out from that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's kind of like streamlined. Like he gets, or she says, you know, you don't have to do this sooner, which spurs him to say like, they always say the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think sugar in the book really comes across as a psychopath because mm-hmm. of everything he has to say about fate and his place in uh, 
the order of how things are meant to happen and and a little egotistical too like you definitely see that he sees himself as a force of nature almost like Mm. just there to carry out what is meant to happen and what is unstoppable but on the part of Carla Jean that was something that I kind of had a problem with in the movie was I, I think so much of her character was stilted and it seemed almost more like her part in the film was just like collateral Mm-hmm. like you know i'll kill your wife like oh yeah. my wife carla jean whereas in the in the novel uh she does have a lot more presence with you know her mother and talking to Llewellyn and talking to Ed tom and then you know talking to sugar right before her death but your question matt i don't know i i, I think in the book her calling it again is another just like miserable pang right. of of wow this is really like because you get your hopes up that yeah, like she could get out of this, yeah. yeah. And then uh, the movie just kind of cuts to it, and then shows him leaving and checking his boots, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I think the book really does make you work up to maybe she will get out of this, like mm-hmm. somehow talk him out of it or call it correctly. Um, but then you're just shot down, and it's so miserable that she right. actually gets murdered. So I don't know. What? How would you answer that question, Josh? Uh, I'm a little bit more towards I I do agree that when I was watching the movie, I was kind of shocked at how short that scene was because I remember in my head, I remembered it going on for much longer. And I'm also not going to say no to more Kelly MacDonald in in the movie, especially (laughs) talking with Sugar. I understand why they streamlined a lot of it. And I'll talk a little bit more about cut dialogue a little bit later. But I agree that you you do get the feeling of the tension again, ramping up and ramping up um, more in that scene in the book um, in in the book yeah Yeah. um because i i think essentially like if i had to compare it to maybe like another scene in both the film and the movie it's very similar to when he meets with um carson wells Mm -hmm. um because you know it, it it just in terms of structurally two characters sitting down one of them is about to die and they're kind of coming to this like bigger realization and moral moral point in their life so they're very similar in that aspect, but I think the one with Carson goes on for a little bit longer in the movie, yeah. if I remember correctly. But um, I, I, I would have liked it. I do agree that it would have been nice if it was just a little bit longer, but I love that they don't show it, you know, because it, it was always like a mystery to me after I saw it for the first time. I've stepdad because I didn't notice him checking his shoes the first time I saw it. Right. And my stepdad didn't either. So he was always like, oh, what do you think? Does he kill her? Like, do you know? Do you know? And in the book, it's obviously like very up front but the movie if you realize like you know he has a couple moments of him checking his boots and making and not wanting to get them dirty and get them bloodied so like um it's kind of a two plus two situation there um so i'm fine with them not showing it or not showing that she called it but i do agree that i would have liked a little bit more like kept going a little bit with that with that scene i can agree with that i think a lot of the times the coens will take the the theme of a scene or the objective of a scene and then like really kind of condense it down to what they think uh, is is appropriate and I'm not saying that like we know better than the Coens or it's their movie they're like obviously singular artists but yeah I would it, it would have been nice if it was just a little bit longer because I, I do also kind of agree that like you know I like her going against him like no one's really fully like face to face gone against him uh, at this point like verbally especially when it's like really faced with death you know Llewellyn uh, has like we have that amazing uh, hotel shootout scene and which is longer in the book, but like he's running away and trying to save himself. Whereas Carla Jean's the one's kind of facing the fire. Yeah. Like I wish there was just a little bit more of that because that's such a big, you know, a uh, big thing, but I'm fine with them not showing or her choosing the coin flip in the movie, but in the book, it's still handled well because of again, how it's just like she chooses heads. He picks his hand up. It's tails. 
he says like too bad and kills her and then that's the end of the sentence and then it's a new paragraph yeah it's just like, so I, I, I like it, it's very like oh shit like it is very because, like a fuck like i'm not gonna sit with this <laughs> that's the thing i think in the movie it feels more like movie if that makes sense like well of course I mean, like she's movie, gonna yes. die but no but i mean like well again almost like collateral like well it makes sense that she's gonna get murdered because <laughs> you know he's tying up loose ends whatever but in the film uh and especially with all the time that we spend with sugar and the extra dialogue that we do see him say in the book um like when he's kind of talking to that guy that he kills in the office he's explaining why he used the certain bullet that he did Mm -hmm. uh his uh longer conversation with carson yeah in the book i think that conversation with carson wells goes on too long like i think the movie is an appropriate length like oh yeah it gives it enough time but like i think when i just when at least when i was listening to the audiobook i'm like oh he there's just still going and it felt a little bit repetitive towards the end it's like okay you're gonna shoot him and it just kind of felt like it was drawn out a little too long Mm -hmm. um so yeah i think maybe if they uh they should have definitely stretched out the the carla jean scene but i think the movie does the that the Carson Wells scene uh, yeah. pretty well. And yeah. I would say that it seems like the Coens almost had their own characterization of Sugar uh, because in the film he comes across so like quiet and deadly and scary, but the book almost humanizes him a little bit more uh, in my yeah. opinion because of just how much like, it's like, Oh, he does talk. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot mm-hmm. more monologues. Like again, even at the coin flip scene in the book, he monologues a bit at the end. And I, I think the Coens, Maybe we're even trying to kind of like make him a little more parallel to uh, Llewellyn in terms of minimal dialogue and kind of just being these stoic figures. Because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I can see pros and cons to both, but I guess, yeah, in the movie, their goal really was to make him this menacing force. And there's something about it in the book that when he's like going off on these long monologues, it does make him feel more just like another person rather than like this demonic figure. Yeah, but, like I a mean, weirdo rather than, mm-hmm. like you yeah. said, a demonic, yeah. horrifying yeah. Or, force. Or even like parallels with like, you know, making it kind of feel like Hannibal Lecter, who is like this super intelligent kind of mm-hmm. villain. I'm not saying there's a lot of overlap between those two characters. They're obviously very different. But like, I think in the book, the intelligence is what like really stuck stood out. To yeah, no, not, that he's, that comparison. not that he's yeah. like dumb in the movie but he's more you don't know as much about him the book Mm -hmm. is a little bit more revealing and and i i like the portrayal in the uh i mean i i personally like both but i I do agree i wanted to bring up the point about the the dialogue and kind of cut stuff is i agree that in the movie i think the carson wells scene is an appropriate length um i think that in some cases the coens will take like a lot of the dialogue because i like like i said up top cormac mccarthy likes to kind of um really get like how does he think the uh, exchange would go on if these two characters were to meet in real life there obviously would be a lot of repeated questions a lot of backlash a lot of kind of uh, really quick switch in topic in terms mm-hmm. of like what is being discussed um, but I, I understand why they wanted to like uh, you know it's like oh well he just says what and repeats the question we don't really need to be get that in the movie that kind of like get the idea at that point um so i think the dialogue in the carson wells scene is terrific like i love you know like which is also in the book where he's like if the rule you followed brought to you to this and what use was the rule and it's just like he says go to hell and then that's like you know, yeah uh it and so i think in that case the streamlining of the dialogue works but i do agree that yeah a lot of the carla jean dialogue would have been um would have would have been nice to include in there just in terms of thematically i don't really think they need to follow the um the text like 
to a T in terms of the, like I said, the how how repetitive it can be and sometimes of just bringing up certain questions. They do a good job of pacing the dialogue through and the Coens are also no stranger to subtext. They love just kind of making you think about, you know, what was just said. Um, that being said, though, as much as they do a good job of bringing over great lines of dialogue from the book, they also put in their own little flourishes. I was shocked to find out that the line that like kind of my favorite line in the whole movie is when Carson Wells goes to see the, the guys played by Stephen Root and he sits down and the guy's like, did I ask you to sit? And he's like, no, sir, but you strike me as a man who wouldn't want to waste a chair. Like that's just the <laughs> Coen brothers special. And it's so fucking good. Yeah. I, I, I love it. And again, it kind of reminds you that this is a Coen brothers movie, but they also love, syntax and dialects and stuff like that of very specific kind of idiosyncratic places there is almost a twin peaks vibe to that in in a way but i think they make some very interesting choices like i said of streamlining some of the dialogue and breaking down i i think they like the idea of people saying as little as possible mm-hmm. like i think that's a common thread through most of their movies so in some cases it works but the, I, I do agree in other scenes i'm i'm like oh i would have would have been cool to see just a little bit more just yeah. a little bit more well, speaking of lines of dialogue that the Coen brothers put in themselves, do you remember the got a Scroogey line? <laughs> Is that a line that the Coen brothers wrote? Because I was I so, so, I was like, I don't remember this being in the book. And <laughs> I was going to say that so I love that line. Seems like something that Sugar wouldn't say. And now I'm, I'm eating my words when I was saying that the Coen brothers really make him more scary and terrifying. I think Bardeem's performance, there's almost he's like goofy sometimes with the, mm. you know, got a Scroogey and the look that he gives the gas station clerk, which is just iconic. Mm-hmm. Another line they add, I think I don't think is in the book is when he shoots Steven Root's character and he says to the other account guy, like that depends. Do you see me? And oh yeah. That was cool though. Too. That was very like that scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I, I do agree. I think that the, I think after, you know, seeing it so many times that some of those things do stick out as being goofy. Like, I, as I just did, I love the fucking got a Scroogey line. Because oh, it's so I goofy. love it, too, because it's, it's so, again, like humanizing and real. Like, well, that's the thing is, like, when you see it like that and the, the look or, you know, when <laughs> he's, you know, again, messing with another person, like when he like says to the the guy's like, oh, I didn't mean nothing by it. He's like, didn't mean nothing by it. Like he does oh, yeah, like making yeah. fun of the way. Like it's, I think it's, it's supposed to be funny, but it's also like Fargo-esque where it's like, I'm also nervous. I'm nervously laughing, you know, yeah. like yeah. it's like, it's, it's very nerve wracking. I don't really know what this guy is going to do. Like he's just so unpredictable and so um, intimidating, you know, to really to kind of um, say the least. I wanted to go back to performances. I wanted to talk about um, Tommy Lee Jones for a second and kind of bring sure. back a lot of the stuff about um, Ed Tom's character. And that was my biggest takeaway from the movie of how, um, yeah, you're right. They do take out a lot with how fleshed out his character is. And I think that it was still enjoyable to watch him because again, Tommy Lee Jones, it's so great to hear that voice and to you know see what he's doing in his like quick, you know, quips and one liners fugitive style as he yeah. does, you know, like, but I ain't it'll do till the mess gets here. Yeah. You know, that's, that's like great. my favorite line in the whole, it's in the book and the movie. I love that mm-hmm. line. Yeah. But it's, it's a great performance by him because he does get this. And I think a, another thing that does help is just having him been like this guy, like just the 
star that's been around for you know decades at this point. Um, so we obviously already have an established relationship with him, but you would get that he's like just the right age and his voice is kind of gravelly and you can see, you can tell this guy has seen something because Tommy Lee Jones, while you know, can and be he's like from a, Texas and he's from Texas, like yeah. he has this kind of badass quality to him, especially in the fugitive, this like brooding confidence. But this is something different where he's like, he's seen some stuff. You know, he has that line in the beginning. I don't remember if this line's in the book, but he says like, you know, I'm, uh, I don't want to push my chips forward and meet something I don't understand. You know, he has this, that that's that kind of like, he's scared. Like he is very nervous, but then he's like, you know, all right, I'll be a part of this world. Um, and I love what he does with the character, but I, yeah, I think that, they get the the basics of the character, but yeah, they don't get stuff like the um, the war backstory and the certain interactions like the whole there's like his tiring interactions with the DEA agent or the other sheriff and how he doesn't really work. He, he works so much better on his own right. in the book, like especially when he goes back to the um, to the motel room where Llewellyn is shot at the end. It's good that he's like by himself. You could see how like contemplative he is and how he's just like he works best in his own head but like can kind of like have these quippy like snaps at these other um uh his co-workers or like you know the other dea agent or the sheriff or even his like interactions with wendell are very funny he's like you know see the look at the milk it's still sweaty he's like oh sheriff we just missed him like he's like you know he, he's obviously like also one kind of one step ahead in that point but i still love the performance but i do agree that like i i kind of wish that um there was some more stuff and i don't really know how they would have like stretched out some of those journal entries in the movie does he only narrate at the beginning i'm forgetting already i think so yeah right the ending that that journal entry he like speaks it right yeah that works i mean that ending's amazing and so i guess the coens are probably just trying to avoid like interspersing too much narration like in the book that works to start each chapter that way but in a movie i think it might kind of like halt the pace if they kept going back to his narration well mm-hmm. and here i feel like i like didn't do my homework in the film he meets up with his uncle still and i can't right. remember mm-hmm. do they at all talk about the war because okay because in the book when he meets up with his uncle he tells him yeah, that's well, that goes on a lot longer in the book. Yeah. I mean, the entire ending after, you know, Llewellyn dies, I think the movie definitely streamlines a lot of that. And I think a lot of that stuff that's cut out is kind of unnecessary, like uh, Ed Tom Bell interviewing the boy that saw the car crash. Like, you don't really need that. And, like, there's some other moments that just kind of take the falling action a little too long, in my opinion, yeah. in the book. Yeah, well, I brought up his, uh, you know, when he goes to visit his uncle mostly because uh, – bringing in the war backstory into the mm-hmm. film. I feel like it could have worked there. Yeah. Like I, I kind of yeah. don't understand why not just keep that scene of them. Yeah. That would have been a great place that. to put it was mm-hmm. like his guilt over, you know, his men dying where I like throw it right in there as like, kind of like a button. Like, like, yeah. Like here, here he, you saw the, uh, he couldn't capture this guy. He let him get away. And then like him just being like, remind me of this. And like, I yeah. think it would have tied it together pretty well. I agree. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of forgotten about that scene. That scene is great. You are right that that could have it could have fit in there, um, and well. And I do agree that you know cutting out you know the um, him talking to the boy at the end is fine. I think the way they do the ending in the movie is um, you know with him saying the dreams and just having that be the ending. Because I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, oh shit, that's it. 
fuck, that's awesome. Like, it's so well done. But this, that was actually something I wanted to bring up earlier um, that because you said, um, Brianna, that the um, the movie is almost less depressing in a way. Yeah. It's definitely, I mean, it is still very dark and, you know, has like a lot of like grit to it. But I, I do agree that like when I, I remember every time I finished the movie, I'm just like, damn, that's a good movie. Yeah. And I remember when I finished the book, I was like, I need a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of have to let all of this like really process and, and maybe that's just because that the book was um you know different enough where it still felt like a a new thing in my life where i was like okay this is something that i just experienced i kind of want to let it sit for a minute maybe it would have been the same if i had read the book several times and then just seen the movie for the first time i right. don't know but i do agree that the the tone is um is a little it is a little different in in that respect but i really like how the endings match up and they just kind of go for it we're just like we're just going to do these two scenes or these two shots of him and his wife just talking and he's just going to say the dream. It's going to be the big, you know, final, um, you know, thematic image of just telling these stories. And then, then I woke up and just hear the clock ticking in the background as the, as the credits roll on. Yeah. I, I think it works um, really well in, um, in, uh, in both cases, because I mean, in this it's a final story. And then in the book, it's a final thought. Like it's just a yeah end of an entry. And I, I like that. Mm-hmm. I do appreciate that the film was not scored. Um, yes. I, I think, because mm-hmm. as you were saying, Josh, tonally, I think the Coen brothers do kind of make it something a little different, just with some of the performances and the little dialogue that they add, and also the choice to leave out the like really overwhelming subtext of Ed Tom musing on the country and the state of humanity and where humanity's going, et cetera. Um, I think the tone changes, but I think something that they did that leaves it pretty true to the original book is not scoring it. And I feel like it makes up for, uh, in the book, you get some long descriptions of like the environment and just Mm -hmm. the desert and Llewellyn like going along the river and, hiding in like I think like sugarcane or something (laughs) like uh something some plant a lot of descriptions of nature and setting which you know you get in a movie like organically anyway but it uh it's pretty drawn out in the book description wise and I feel like in the film the lack of score or music makes it feel like you're in that environment which is a very yeah. simplistic way to put it. Right. But uh, yeah, I just appreciate that there's no swelling, swelling action score. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it makes it more tense, honestly. Oh, Specifically when in the beginning when he's strangling him and during an- another thing that was added to the movie that wasn't in the book was the dog chase into the river. Like that's oh yeah the, uh, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and it, you know it's you know a, a complete creation for the movie, and just the, the intensity of him like trying to swim through the river and then get out the gun and fire and like yeah um I think part of me you know I could see this movie being scored and I think it, it would still be effective and good, and honestly I've even thought of like who I would want to score it because um. I'm forgetting the guy's name, but he did uh, Brokeback Mountain. And he so he was working right around that time. And I think he would have been, he was doing some good Western scores and whatnot. I like that kind of That was uh, the one and only Gustavo Santanola who did the Last of Us soundtrack. Oh, uh, and, okay. and is incredible with the, uh, uh, the, the classical guitar. 
Yeah. And so I think that probably, I think it could have potentially fit No Country. I just, he came to mind just because, yeah, I know he, he did uh, uh, Brokeback Mountain and Babel, I think back to back years. So he was, he was popping off with some pretty spicy scores. So like, yeah, I, I appreciate and I like the way it is without the music, but I, I do wonder, you know, I guess I, I would never know unless I watched him back to back one with music, like, you know, what it could be, but yeah, yeah. I like we the also, way it is. I also get the, you know, there will be blood with the Johnny Greenwood score, which is <laughs> like an all out force. Yeah. I also feel like it's much more faithful to Cormac McCarthy and just the way that he writes and yeah, like the, the dryness of it. Yeah. So like to not have that music in the background keeps it dry and like yeah. arid almost. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Because in the road film adaptation that's scored and sometimes Ugh. I was like, this is just feels very goofy. Them walking mm. through this desolate environment, but there's this huge orchestra right. music. Like it feels wrong. Yeah, that movie's I, terrible. <laughs> you don't like the you don't like the road movie? No, I do not. I've never seen it. I it's, haven't read the book either. It's the performances are good, but like everything else, it just it just doesn't work. That book is so yeah. re- reliant on it just being words and you having to like really put piece together the information in your head and how mm-hmm. it you know kind of jumps around in a few places and that just makes it more of a puzzle piece and the movie just doesn't do that which i know is tough for visual but we're not talking about that movie we're talking about a good movie yeah, sorry to <laughs> sorry to no uh, no no i just said that because i went on a rant but, um, <laughs> uh yeah i totally agree no music is uh just fantastic and uh i think what you were saying also Rihanna, about the um kind of elongating um some of the descriptions of the countryside that kind of plays into a little bit more of stuff that i'll get into in analysis cormac mccarthy loves his nature descriptions oh yes Um, (laughs) but uh i think that they kind of you know for film you know they get away with it a lot in establishing shots you know the opening is just tommy lee jones narrating over these like varying shots of texas during the evening and leading Mm -hmm. up to um you know a sugar's initial arrest that brings in you know the uh yeah yeah exactly <laughs> that that says the inciting incident to the um to the whole story yeah i think that uh there's also some elongated parts in the book about how uh you know the the like you said the river chase kind of goes off in a different uh different direction um him going down the river and getting off at different points and feeling like he was a mile away from town and like all of that um, but then there's also stuff, uh, for me, the biggest takeaway that I, again, I still liked this in the book, but I'm glad they did what they did in the movie. They kind of do like a hotel street shootout part two in the book. Yeah. There's a section yeah. of the hotel and then, um, Brolin goes over the border and that plays out pretty much the same as it does in the movie. But then in the book, it's the cartel then kind of meets up with Shiger and there's a whole other shootout in yeah. the um in the town. And I'm personally fine with them not having that in the book because I think it's another thing where it's like, you know, it's, it, I think the whole point of it being in the book is that the book kind of ties up a little bit more of loose ends about what exactly is going on in terms of the cartel and their role in the story whereas the yeah. the movie it kind of just fades into the background you don't really kind of like um, ambiguous you know yeah it's more ambiguous and i i think just the pacing of it it's a really intense scene and the way that the cohen's shoot it like movement on dollies and um you know the way that he jumps out of the uh the window and getting the guy in the truck and like i like how all that is like one thing and then i I don't really know if it would have totally fit in to have another shootout, you know, like just 10 minutes later. Cause I yeah. think we know that Shiguri is going to go back and still try and get him because just the way that the movie's played out, 
Llewellyn got away. And then Carson Wells is going to say, like, you don't know what you're up against. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get, the, um, you know, he's going to come back and they're going to meet up uh, again. So I'm fine with them taking that out of the movie personally. Yeah, plus, plus, we already had the scene with him shooting out in the original motel. You know, mm-hmm. when in the movie, he, he gets this crazy shotgun silencer which definitely doesn't exist but the sound of it in the movie is awesome and does that thing sound like that or exist in real life (laughs) nope but it's awesome (laughs) yeah truly terrific that also that first motel scene all the first motel stuff is truly fantastic Mm -hmm. um that's another thing that i think the coens do well with the adaptation is that because the that first motel scene is totally reliant on there's like not a whole lot of dialogue it's really just like you know he opened the grade and put the the case up in there and moved it over and you're kind of like the fuck is this guy doing like what is this how is and then you realize like oh he but then when you see it in the movie it's like oh he gets the map and he realizes he's in the room next door and then the guy's there so they like he's in or he's behind him he's in the room behind him so um then he's able to get the case and bring it around to his side escape about the back like it makes more sense visually but it's still fun to read it in the book because it leaves like again when with the spacing of the paragraphs it leaves mystery like oh how are we gonna go back to this what's uh (laughs) what's going on like uh some some, like you know stuff's about to get a little randy let's see what's happening you know and (laughs) with the multiple shootouts in the book i think that's another thing of the book being much more violent and miserable uh in a way that the coen brothers didn't really seem to want to go for uh, clearly the movie's violent, but I just think the book is like so much more miserable, which I love because in yeah. the book there's like the little detail of, I think there's like, they get a clerk to replace the one who was just shot and like oh, he and gets the, killed. Oh, yeah. yeah. The book tells you he also dies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then they just shut down the whole motel. Like it's so miserable. <laughs> like there's True. so much death. Like I remember in the movie uh, when Sugar is talking to the, manager of the uh, trailer park complex the woman who feels very like fargo coen brothers character Did you go up to his trailer <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was like oh my god like doesn't this character die in the book uh, is he gonna kill her and then he didn't um, surprisingly he yeah seems to surprisingly kill everyone, but <laughs> i know and and i think that was like a coen i assume that was a coen brothers choice of this would just be too brutal and miserable if this woman just got shot in front mm-hmm. of us like spare some characters spare some of the violence and like bloodshed yeah they do take the high road in some uh in some of those cases of just uh yeah we'll leave them believe them be yeah we get it like he doesn't like we also don't want to you know we want to save moments of violence for uh for later where we can be even more gory so it feels kind of earned in some aspects but i do agree that like um in the book since they have just more space and more you know time and just world to do that it Mm -hmm. works and it does make the book um uh you know much more like yeah that thing with the 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 hotel attendant that's really fucking brutal like it's it's just like god sad but they do a cool thing in the in the movie too where it's like again a kind of a two plus two scenario where like you know you see the cat in the uh when Llewellyn first checks in and the, with the milk. And then when he comes back, the bowl's been tipped over and the blood has mixed in with the milk. So you can yeah. see the guy like in the background, that's just cool visual storytelling. Oh, very, very cool. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's just, it's just an interesting how they handle interesting way of how they handle uh, little things like that. Um, one, one thing we uh, haven't talked about yet 
surprisingly in a little bit more detail because I kind of think we have to just because of how iconic it is, is uh, the coin toss scene. And uh, I really wanted to just kind of circle back to it for a good reason, just because like it is so iconic and it still holds up like it's so much fun to be fun is not the best word but it's so interesting <laughs> oh, no, it's, to, fun. It is it's fun. so so interesting to watch it each time like i i still am just like oh what is he gonna say how is he gonna react like is he gonna like i don't know it's i feel like i'm watching it again for the first time each time because of just how you know using two shots and they're just kind of pushing in no music the dialogue is so deliberate and like another good moment is when like uh the the clerk is like it, it is something wrong? And Sugar takes on this almost like fake, uh, like uh, sentimental voice where he's like, what? Like it was like, <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like, I don't know. It's almost like cute the way he says it. Like what, what's wrong? It was so <laughs> funny. Cause again, he's constantly fucking with people and like, he just does it for his own benefit. It's like, yeah. it's and truly, truly amazing. That and actor is so great playing. He's the perfect. And like, dang, if they didn't find just the perfect guy to like, have this like right amount of dopiness mm-hmm. and like, uh, you know, naive, naivety, naivety, however mm-hmm. the fuck you say that. Uh, <laughs> like he just plays it so well. The sir, sir. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, yeah just so like this one minor character just so perfectly shows how simple and non-violent and like non cruel these people live their lives of just simple i wake up i go work as a gas station clerk yeah I and go kind to of bed. The, the brilliance of like sugar also like bringing him down by like being like you married into this yeah like, <laughs> if that's the way you want to put it <laughs> we lived in temple texas for many years like. yeah but that's something that i think the movie like we're diverting away from the coin toss we can go talk about it more josh i promise but no, i okay. think with the performances and i the book definitely includes this but with the performances in the film it comes across so much more stark you know this the simple quiet lives of even ed tom where he's a cop like you'd think he's seen constant violence and hatred and just the worst thing that people can do to each other it seems like he really has not seen just the like complete worst of humanity whereas you know the drug cartel sugar carson wells it's a world of just violence and money and like greed driving every decision Whereas Ed Tom entering the police force, that's just what he wanted to do, be a lawman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think there's this like dichotomy between violence being the world in which Sugar operates and then violence being something that Ed Tom has to kind of interact with. And then people like the gas station clerk, Llewellyn, Carla Jean, who just violence so does not need to be part of their lives like at all mm-hmm. but on sugar passing through makes it something that they really have to confront and experience yeah and i think that really comes out in the book too of being again with the i mentioned up top that the the three different almost like very different writing styles that each three of the characters uh adopt because of mccarthy and you know there there almost is yes we get more monologue from sugar and there's a little bit more humanity in him in the book but he is still just like headstrong total cut and dry like monotone and like has just kind of gone through this world um and that's just you know that's just how he how he lives 
And it's fascinating how they translated that to performances. And uh, uh, one more thing that I wanted to bring up uh, before we move to uh, analysis was um, was Josh Brolin, um, who is, I think, just terrific. And he does something really cool of like, he also doesn't have a lot of dialogue in the movie. But he does this cool thing. Like he got the talking to himself really like down. Like again, when he's like out in the middle of nowhere, he's like, all right, now where would you be? You go to shade or like being constantly in his own mind or like when he's laying in bed and he's like, there just ain't no way. And that's <laughs> how he like starts to go through the the yeah. money case. And, you know, he, he's also like at a really good point where he's like, he's able to kind of just make himself look like just a regular kind of Texan tough dude, you know, and he clearly has also seen some stuff. They mentioned how he was in the war. Um, but again, I love how they do visually with like, he's also very smart, you know, like buying the tent poles, you know, which tent do you want? One with the most poles, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, getting that, how he navigates through the hotel, knowing that there's a tracker in the bag going out the back and just all of his individual choices are just so interesting. And I think Brolin is just, and also he has such great delivery. You know, where'd you get the pistol? At the getting place. You know, he's just so, he has such great delivery. But again, I think you also mentioned it, Matt, he does a really good job of when he's laying in that bed up at night after he gets back from the, from the drug site, you could tell he's just like, shit, I got to yeah. do this. Like you could tell he's like, and he says, you know, I'm fixing to do something dumber than hell, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Like you can, I, and you believe it. You're just like, wow. Okay. Yeah. This guy, he's, he's going to do something that none of us would do, but it's because this conscience is like going to stick with him that he has to go and do it and keep it safe. And he's, and he's also, he is doing everything for a good reason. Like, yeah, I know he like, you know, kind of, you know, talks to Carla Jean in, in a somewhat demeaning 1980s Texas way. Um, you know, it's like, you know, keep it up. I'll, I'll take you out back and screw you. You know, it's like, I don't even want, you know, like, uh, but he does, you know, he's like, you got to go to Odessa, you know, you got to, you got to get out of here, you know, go stay with your mother. You know, he wants to protect them and he's keeping the money because he knows it's going to be like, you know, it, you know, that's the ephemeral question where it's like, what, where, what would you do if you came across $2 million in cash, you know? Yeah. And I, I think he's just, great I'm, I'm i've always been a big josh brolin fan maybe because we have the same name i don't know but like uh <laughs> he's he i think just does such a great job here yeah i agree <laughs> uh, is there uh anything else we want to talk about um critical wise or do we want to uh let's move- analyze this bitch. <laughs> 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 to kind of uh bring this uh whole discussion home we've obviously gone into great detail but i think personally if i may start um, I know I just talked a lot, but I have <laughs> I have a lot to say about the analysis. I wanted to say that um, I think that the way, again, that brings about the kind of Cohen-ness of the movie versus the McCarthy-ness of the book kind of is very much like embedded in the message and the themes in the movie and in, in the work. So I think, and this is just something that's throughout a lot of Cormac McCarthy's writing in The Road and Blood Meridian or like All the Pretty Horses is like he loves man versus nature. Man trying to do everything they can to survive, but nature is always going to be like this over like powering brute force like against them. Now, whether it wins or doesn't win is kind of varied on the actual, you know, which story you choose. But 
it's something that's always there. You know, the descriptions of the nature and the surrounding area in that desert are so beautiful when they're not really describing, like he could take a tree and make it about like something like this, it make it a, its own force. Like he's so good at doing that. And the Coens wanted to focus more on <clears throat> the cat and mouse aspect. And I mean, as the title suggests, no country for old men. They wanted to kind of focus on, this is just a world that's going to constantly bat against you. And you either kind of have to go along with it or, you kind of yeah, you're accepted or you you know um, detest it. So, I I think it's interesting that like I got a lot more of in the book the slam of nature and man going against each other, and that's like a very big powerful like uh, theme that they go into a lot uh, in the book. Uh, what about you, Rihanna? What did you pick up on uh, in terms of themes differing from one work to the other? Well, um, you know, as we mentioned, Ed Tom's reflections on war and politics and his own personal familial generational trauma and like what's happened with his family. He talks about, he had like an aunt whose son was like, or husband was like shot in front of her or something. It Mm -hmm. it was something that he talks about towards the end of the book um, having to do with like war. Uh, And all of that is just completely gone in the film. And so I would say that there are almost two different thematic things <laughs> thematic themes yeah uh, let's go in, english major in yeah. each <laughs> in Sorry. each work um because in no country with all of ed tom's musings and reflection on his time in the war politics general societal unrest it makes me think of you know the title no country for old men as speaking about america specifically and how much (laughs) it'll sound really like simplistic but war and the general violence of familial trauma drafts families who are traumatized i think it makes the book come across thematically as more about how there's an inherent violence in America and you know Texans and they're very like patriotic American ways uh that come through in the book you know are shaped by you know again the inherent violence of of a country that is willing to just draft people and put them to war and have them kill each other and then come back with a medal like to show you that you did a good job whereas Ed Tom you know he got a medal of recognition, but he comes back from war feeling just like he did something wrong. I, I'm not quite sure where Llewellyn as a veteran really comes in, if, if it's supposed to be shown as something that really uh, affected him so deeply that it changed him or whatever, or uh, if it's supposed to mean that him being a veteran, he feels that he can take on the cartel and he is equipped to play cat and mouse with Anton Chigurh because, you know, he's seen violence in Vietnam. <laughs> then what's the difference when there actually is a big difference? So I, I think the novel generally reflects more on the inherent American violence that does seep through into nature. Like you said, Josh, man versus nature and soil like American soil, which is why I like that uh, the book, they, they cross borders back and forth between Mexico and Texas. And we have that great scene at the border crossing with the uh, border agent being like, who do you think I let into this country? Yeah. I let Americans <laughs> in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think the book is trying to say something that I'm not articulate 
enough to <laughs> fully acknowledge about how just endless war uh, mm-hmm. will be enough to kind of brutalize any population of people and make them feel like they have something to fight against, whether they're fighting against nature and oppression by dyeing their hair green and putting bones in their noses, like people in both the <laughs> film and book say, like one of Ed Tom's colleagues says that, or joining the drug cartel, because fuck it, like I'll make money that way, right. or serving their country and then coming back and trying to like go back to normal, like Llewellyn. Um, mm-hmm. But then obviously that doesn't happen. Uh, and then in the movie, I think, like you said, Josh, it, it's much more like cat and mouse. And thematically, I think I would say that the man versus nature thing actually comes through in the movie more because I think with, you know, we just spoke about the characterization of sugar and all of that. He almost is like a force of nature in the film, just something unstoppable. Mm -hmm. And the cat and mouse is much more of the focus where I think in the novel, there's a lot more about history because that's so much of what Ed Tom's journals too is like personal history his family history and how history you know no country for old men like this is a country that is just gonna completely beat you to defeatism defeatism being defeated uh whereas in the film it's like this game of cat and mouse is enough to make you feel like defeated that there is evil that you just can't catch up to you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> he, he says it in the kind of in the opening lines that uh, Tom is like, you know, you know, the crime the crime we see today, it's hard enough for you to take take its uh to take its major, and then like at the at the end of that, he says, you kind of just have to say, okay, I'll be a part of this world, and they all kind of end up being like it is a survival story in and of itself mm-hmm. of just trying to do everything that you can to um to survive and get off and be fine and kind of avoid death almost, and then that's kind of what is you know Shigure is is this kind of walking. Um, uh, you know, merchant of death, and to kind of you know put it in this you know pompousy you know kind of way. But you are you do have a good point. I think I think that um all of all that stuff about war is a really good take on it, and that definitely comes through in the book. And you are right; they do kind of streamline it into being more of Sugar's character as the nature versus um versus man um conflict, which is really obviously just makes for some just good conflict and yeah. a really <laughs> a well done story. And, um, and in the book, I, I view the nature aspect as like the nature of American society, mm-hmm. American violence, whatever. Right. What about you, Matt? Yeah. Kind of sounding off the last couple of things um, she was saying, uh, like to me, a lot of the book is kind of that inevitability of defeat and just you can run from it, but it seems like it's always coming. And I think the movie follows along with that. But for me, it's like the movie, I think, harkens more to like the feelings of desperation and defeat in terms of just like feeling helpless in the world. In that, like, by the end of the movie, I think the movie really explains or not explains, but shows through, especially that final monologue with the dreams. You, I think all of it's in. Tommy Lee Jones's eyes and the way he delivers it of like this feeling of, did he make a difference at all? Like why was like, what's the point of being around when like this evil pervades and like you can't win against such, you know, recklessness and such like violence. And so uh, that's why that final scene in the movie, uh, like the book, you know, I think almost kind of like, I guess maybe it was maybe the audiobook felt like it rushed a little bit through those last dreams. But in the movie, I think Tommy Lee Jones takes his time with it. And just again, like the acting he's doing with his eyes to, uh, you mm-hmm. know, 
you, you feel for him. You feel in this moment that he is minuscule. Like he, like he did all this time as sheriff and, and for what, you know, like he couldn't get the, catch the bad guy. This boy from his County that he was trying to protect died. Like what, like what do you do in the face of that, that kind of evil? And, uh, you know, the cynic in me is, <laughs> I appreciate a message like that because I often think humanity, uh, in general tends to favor being evil and bad. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, that's why I love like black mirror. Like I love dark endings. I love sad because to me, <laughs> this world often is unforgiving. And mm-hmm. I think both the book and movie are great at capturing that, but just specifically that last scene in the movie, I think just really sums it all up and, and really knocks it out of the park. Yeah. yeah and like you said, so much, sorry, but like you said, Matt, so much of that has to do with Tommy Lee Jones and his performance. And that's why I feel so sad that we didn't get to see him monologue about the war and yeah. mm-hmm. uh, him, you know, abandoning his men and just that kind of thing. Oh. Yeah, that would have been cool. But I do agree that like, yeah, the way he, I think a lot of it also has to do with, um, you know, just, control and them trying to get to one outcome when they know what the other outcome is because you know Shigur obviously is coming at them trying to get the money back he's going to kill anybody in his path but Ed Tom is trying to intervene and you know bring justice where Llewellyn is trying to kind of take it for himself almost in this kind of Robin Hood-esque kind of way and really attempt to you know bring good into his own family and um and to beat this kind of higher power, this other force. And I think that kind of makes it even more poignant when he dies at the end, but it's not even by Shigur. It's by just these, you know, uh, random hitmen that um, happen upon him because of, um, I mean, I guess they would be members of the cartel because of some other circumstances that kind of meet up um, off screen. But I think that that, again, that makes it, so understandable why Tommy Lee Jones's character completely like quits at the end because he sees that and he's like, fuck, I was so close and it wasn't even yeah. against the people that I was really fighting against. It was, yeah. it was, I was going against this one guy and this whole other team of random people came in and at that, and when you see that it's, I mean, it's one of the only moments in the movie that's filmed with handheld. Mm-hmm. So you know how like desperate of a, like a, uh, or poignant of a situation it is. And you see in that moment, he is like, he just has that like total, like, like you said, Matt, that is about like defeat. And I do love uh, a good ballsy ending like that. I, I do love when a movie can really try and, you know, stick it in just being like, yeah, this is uh more fucked, you know? And uh, it's because I think it's kind of more um, risky to do an ending like that. One that is uh, more depressing and more kind of just like, let that sit in your stomach, you know, like a rock, you know, just kind of, uh, and it's, it's really interesting to see. And I think it's a great image of just, you know, sugar, just walking away yeah. from the wreck, just down, down the street, just away. And he's just going to be out in the world. And then that leads right into, 
Tommy Lee Jones is uh it's interesting how in the beginning he's you know still in the workforce so, like he has everything that he needs to do in the day and he's so used to kind of going like scheduled wise and then at the end he's just like oh I don't really know what to do maybe I'll go ride and maybe I'll stay around here he's just so kind of yeah lost I'll go see my point. uncle like he's just like aimless you know he's yeah just- it is an interesting kind of reversal of a character arc where it's like you know usually the person starts off kind of aimlessly not really sure what they're supposed to do and then by the end of it they have this kind of um, scheduled life and like understanding of what is right for them and then he is the complete opposite he thought he knew all of these years and then by the end he's like yeah this world is uh this world's not for me uh yeah. as the as the title would suggest yeah it's fascinating so i think all that to say i think that the control and wanting to you know use everything in your life up to the point where this big moment happens this total life-changing moment i mean the movie also is about change in and of its and you know in and of itself and no matter what you try and do, hoping like as hard as you can to get to something, it's going to end up probably not how you expect it, which is yeah. a very simple way of saying it. But I think the book does yeah. that. Um, yeah, the inevitability really well. of change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I still kind of get caught off guard. I love watching the ending, but it's like and then I woke up and then he just kind of sits there and he kind of looks at the table and then boom, cut to black, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. You're like, God well, damn. Reading it, <laughs> did it hit you as hard? Like it hit differently because I was really expecting it. So Mm -hmm. I knew like at that point I was like, okay, this is where it's going to end. And it's going to be like written out and it is written out pretty much exactly how word for word, like word for word. Yeah. But you are right that I think in the, in the movie, it's just like he takes his time. So it seems like it's a lot longer. Whereas in the book, it's just kind of like really just like a paragraph. Yeah. Um, So when it ended there, I, I think I, I knew going in that the ending was the same. But it's still it felt very Cormac McCarthy because, again, like his endings are like the ending of the road ends with this one single paragraph again about this specific fish that swims upstream uh, in a certain location that happens in the book. And I remember that. or Yeah, it happens in the book. And I remember that being a big topic of discussion when I read the book in high school. And um, because that's like so when you just look at it service wise has nothing to do with the story. And then you kind of have to just like put it it's like the fuck is a fish. I was just watching. A, you know, it's like, um, but it, it obviously has some metaphorical. So I was definitely expecting it to be like, I, I just imagine whenever Cormac McCarthy finishes a book, he's just like, yep, I'm done. You know, yeah. like I just think he's just, he hits, hits, hits the ending. He's like, yep, that's good. Yeah. Cause, Cause you were talking about how, you know, sad it is in the film and how ballsy you think it is to end on such a low note. And um, you know, I do just want to shout out to the book too for doing like the same. I, I think it's mm-hmm. so great to uh, end on on such a sad low note, especially with the book because it's like, oh my god, I've been reading this for so long, like yeah. two hundred and ninety pages in, and you like let me down with a sad ending. It is uh, that, a more that's not how I feel, yeah. but uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's like fuck you, you don't get what you wanted. <laughs> Whereas with a movie, it's like that's only an hour and a half, two hours, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he likes to play with his audience. Well, I think we uh, have covered a lot of ground here, so I think it's time to answer the big final question. Uh, As I said before, we are kind of switching it up for this series. Um, So I think we'll start with you, Matt, as being our guest. Tell us, after rereading the the book, rewatching the movie, um, how does this work, No Country for Old Men, connect with you, and which um, medium do you connect with more, the book? the movie or are they equal to you? While I'll always appreciate the book and the differences it has, I think this is again, a a perfect case of book to movie adaptation that just, you know, 
it cuts out what it needs to and the acting really accelerates certain parts and especially the direction and so many of the scenes. Um, I, I think it's just truly a perfect adaptation and I, I will always love this movie until my dying day. I think <laughs> it's just a beautiful work of art and again, a beautiful work on just the feelings of desperation and feelings of, you know, the inevitability of, you know, evil forces and, and, change and you know all that comes with that so yeah i i love i love this movie but again i I think the book is also excellent Mm -hmm. rihanna yeah i mean and the question being like which would i prefer would you say Mm -hmm. yeah i I do think i'd have to go with the book um i love the movie i love the coen brothers and anything they do uh and like matt was saying i think the performances just really uplift so much of the book um, and amplify how great it is. And so I really appreciate the movie for that and love the movie for that. But I, I do think I prefer the book because just Ed Tom's journals, I think, are such a strength and so great to read. And I really appreciate that you feel like almost you have this character guiding you through the book in a way that you don't really get in the movie. And as I was saying earlier, the the subtext of, you know, continually referring back to war and... Ed Tom's family and the kind of trauma that they've had relating to war, violence, police work, whatever. Uh, I, I really feel like there's more to bite off in terms of thinking of themes in a way that challenges me, <laughs> as was probably mm-hmm. uh, evident in me trying to talk about it. it. It really gives me a lot more to think with and, and contemplate and digest, uh, whereas the movie it kind of just gives me a high of like, yeah, I love that movie. And then I'm done mm-hmm. with it. Uh, the, the book I think has kind of sat with me in a way that the movie doesn't, or the movie sits with me in the way of like, what a great movie. Whereas the yeah. book like gives me things to really think about. I love them both, but I, I do think the book is just so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm going to agree with everything you both said. Uh, that's, no, um, it's weird because like I, I said at the top of that, I was glad that we were, um, that we waited a little bit because there has this been this talk of war in my head where I was like, when I finished the book, I was like, fuck, like this book is so, so good. I mean, I definitely needed to be like, wow, I, it was a journey to get through it. But I was like, wow, like that is like a fucking incredible piece of work and I've just always loved the movie. And when my perception of it changed, I was like, Oh no, like what it it was, it was a weird change, you know? And so I've kind of ruminated on it that I, I'm going to say I like them both equally because I love how these are both really good examples of authorship and that the book, like you said, Rihanna is so unrelenting and violent and has the McCarthy touch. Like another cool thing that McCarthy does is he kind of jumps back and forth in the timeline a little bit. Like there's sections where Ed Tom says like, like there's one part where he's like, I can't believe what they did to her. And then we see how Kelly McDonald died or how mm-hmm. Carla Jean died. Like that's an interesting way of doing it and how he sets up the, the gang of the gang members who are going to kill Llewellyn earlier in the book it reads differently in the in the book than it does in the movie and he also goes into much more detail about like where the money's going and who the people are that are trying to get it and what the cartel is and their relationship with um sugar but 
I think that the Coens take it and make it so they're going to focus on the cat and mouse and the cartel stuff kind of fades into the background, which is kind of a staple of Coen Brothers movies at this point. Like Lebowski, Hail Caesar, Vargo, they all have, you get a sense of the atmosphere and the characters, but the story becomes almost secondary. Like I still watch Big Lebowski and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on in this movie, <laughs> but I love spending time with these characters. And I just, I think it's so fascinating to be in that world. And that's something that they do really well. So I think that it makes sense that for this movie, you, like when, if you were just to watch this movie, you'd be like, okay, so there's a cartel and there, the, the, then Steven Root's involved and it's like a business and Carson Wells is like a hitman kind of guy. Like, so yeah, I think that, you know, they they work so well on their own, but it is fun to see. Like, again, I had moments where I was like, I like that this plays out like a synopsis of the movie for the first, like, you know, 50 pages. And then uh, there was stuff when I was watching the movie where I was like, oh, it would have been cool to see this, like, like gone out longer, like Ed Tom's character or Kelly McDonald or uh, Carla Jean and uh, Shiger in the end there. I think that would have been fun to kind of expand on. Um, so I, I think that, it's still it's always been one of my favorite movies, so I think it will still always be one of my favorites and a special one because, again, I guess, the you know, the question being what this work means to me, um, it is still like it's a point of bond between my brother and I also and my stepdad and we you know love it for that. So it always be special to me there. But reading the book definitely gave me a new kind of view of it. And it was uh, it was just an interesting experience to be to kind of be immersed in this world for so long because it took me like a month to read it. But again, it was so it flew by and then watching the movie, it was really fun to kind of have your mind seeped in that world for so long. It was a it was a very rewarding experience overall. But I think if to answer the question, I think I will say that I enjoy them both uh, equally for different and similar reasons. Oh, well. We fucking did it, guys. Yay. Oh, man. <laughs> that was absolutely fantastic. Um, so, Matt, thank you so much for coming. Hey, you on. know you know, I love being here. And I'll, <laughs> I'll always come back again and again and again. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Frankly, I Love Movies Off the Shelf. You can follow us on Instagram at Frankly I Love Movies and at Frankly underscore podcasts on Twitter. Our show is produced by Sullivan J. Harris with music by Kanan Harris and series artwork by Rihanna Henson. I'm Rihanna Henson. I'm Josh Wall. Frankly, I love books. And frankly, I love movies. Movies.